Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Jim Bianco, president at Bianco Research in Chicago. Jim, welcome. Thanks for having me. So I thought today we would start with you know, an incredible couple of months, starting with March 23rd, which seemed to be the low. Um, and now we've got this whole sort of uh, millennial versus boomer style um, approach to, to markets where you know, we've, we've seen a whole group of people um, you know, jumping on their Robinhood accounts or their other free trading accounts and, and really seemingly pushing up the markets um, with a lot of institutional investors still st- starting to question, you know, how sustainable is this rally? You know, in many cases, we've seen some stocks pass their February highs. Yeah, no, that's that's a good place to start because it does seem to be the hallmark of the rally since late um, since late March. And I think it's important to recognize that what has been happening in the pandemic, I believe, bigger picture is it hasn't created any new trends. It's accelerated existing trends. So the work from home trend was in existence. It's just accelerated. This move towards day trading and uh, self-directed trading had been underway. And I believe the catalyst for it actually came last fall when a lot of the brokers, especially the online brokers, followed Robinhood and they went to zero commissions. Not only that, they, a lot of them also moved to fractional shares. So you can buy now less than one share of a stock. So if you don't like uh, if you have $5,000 in an account and $2,600 is too much for one share of Amazon, don't worry, you could buy 0.1 of an Amazon for 260 bucks. And so now that you can do that at no commission, we've been seeing pre-pandemic big rise in the amount of uh, trading that's been going on. Now, during the pandemic, it exploded higher. Uh, I think it exploded higher for one of two reasons. I think the big reason is FOMO and Tina, those are the words, fear of missing out, and there is no alternative. Big popular phrases here in the U.S. Interestingly, a lot of professional managers use those phrases as if they're enlightening people to them. Oh, I've never heard that before, FOMO and Tina in the U.S. But the reality is that most people that hear them say, yeah, I know a FOMO and Tina, and I'm not interested in you, Mr. Professional Investor, anymore. I'm going to put my money in my own account and I'm going to self-direct it. And that's what they, they seem to be doing a lot of. The other thing, too, is the amount of trading that's been going on among sports gamblers and millennial gamers has exploded, too. Now, typically when I mention sports gamblers and millennial traders, uh, the professional Wall Street investor usually rolls his eyes and says, oh, that's probably true, but it's just a sideshow entertainment. And my comment to him is, yeah, just like 10 years ago, all the tax cap companies thought that goofy little app where you push a button and somebody gives you a ride in your backseat to where you want to go, or the hotels thought that other goofy little app where somebody's renting out their extra bedroom, that stuff's not going to amount to anything. Um, This is a part of the disruption that's been going on on Wall Street 
And remember that prices are set at the margin. And this is much bigger than people think. Now, it's not as big as the institutional crowd, but it doesn't need to be because prices are set at the margin. So if a bankrupt uh, rental car company like Hertz runs from 50 cents to five and a half dollars in a week, and somebody's offering to sell it at five and a half dollars, and there's plenty of people showing up to buy it at that price, that's the price. And that will be setting the price. So this has been underway for a while. It got accelerated during the pandemic. I think the actual question to ask is, when sports gambling returns, how many of these people wander away uh, from this and go back to sports gambling? And how much does that impact the market? Again, I want to emphasize, I understand professional investors get incensed by this kind of talk that their markets are being taken over by this type of retail. But according to the statistics, there are no real good statistics in how big this is. But the ones that we do have, active retail trading accounts at all the major online brokers in the U.S., from Schwab to Fidelity to Ameritrade to Interactive Brokers to SoFi to Robinhood on down the line, might total 50 to 70 million accounts. So when you start taking these numbers and multiplying it by 50 to 70 million, you know what, even though we're talking about a couple of shares here, you know, maybe 50 shares there, maybe less than one here, it can add up to a sizable number that can matter at the margin. Is that is that also because when they're buying, they're just hitting, you know, buy the market? Um, they're not they're not setting any prices. Is that is that the is that the backdrop? Is that the expectation with with a lot of these um, free transmit um, commission options? Yeah, they're just buying at the market. They're usually on social media like Reddit or Twitter, and they're basically talking with each other about what they should be doing or selling. But there's two overarching themes that drive their thinking. Uh, the first theme is. The stock market always goes up, and you hear that all the time. Now, there's a, a guy in the United States. He's a former sports gambler who's now taken into day trading. His name is Dave Partnoy. He's the president of Barstool Sports, and um, he's got a couple of million followers, and he's quickly becoming a big influence in this, in this uh, space. Just today, he was making the case for buying the uh, online uh, pet supply company, Chewy. It's a company here in the U.S. where you order pet supplies online and they deliver them. And since they specialize in pet supplies, they've got a big, long list of what you want. And when he said, why did I buy half a million dollars worth of Chewy? His, his argument was twofold. One, I like dogs. And two, stocks always go up. That's it. We're done with the analysis. That's all you need to know. I like dogs. Stocks go up. Buy it. And there's hundreds of thousands of people that listen to this guy, and they all nod in agreement. And they go, yeah, that's right. And that seems to be what's driving them, at least on that end. The other side of the equation, and this gets more into the more substantive stuff for, for institutional investors. Um, they have been big players in what I'll call broken stocks. When a stock breaks down hard, these accounts fly in. No bigger example than that than what happened in March. When the stock market was cratering in March, the amount of small retail investors that were opening new accounts set a record. And not only did it set a record, it set a record by a mile is what happened. So they looked at the entire cratering of the stock market and said, 
time to open an account and buy. They look at the cratering of the airlines, the energy stocks, the, uh, um, the cruise ship stocks, uh, uh, the retailers, and they say it's time to buy. And the reason that they do when you, when you listen to what their argument is, is not only do stocks always go up, but the reason you want to buy the airlines the day that Warren Buffett says he sold them is, didn't Buffett see that Trump has tweeted out they're going to bail out the airlines? Doesn't he see that the Fed is printing trillions of dollars? Nothing is allowed to go away. Nothing is allowed to go to zero. Everything that falls needs to be bought. Back to my Dave Portnoy example, he's actually complaining that as he scans his list of stocks, there's nothing down 50% in the last week. Because if it's down 50% in the last week, then my analysis is done and I need to buy it. Now, let me emphasize here, for the last three months, that has been exactly the right strategy. That has worked better than any other strategy one could have come up with. So, yeah, am I skeptical of this? Do I think this ends in tears? Sure. But as of our discussion here today, if you want to know how to buy, go search out the worst possible stocks, especially ones that have gotten pounded, especially ones that are getting near filing for bankruptcy, and buy them. And buy them hard because that's how you double your money in a couple of days. And that's, there's plenty of examples of that happening over and over again. You know the problem for institutional investors is they, they you know, they're, they're fiduciaries. They need to manage their money. You know, for for members, you know, they they can't they can't copy this, and yet the indices continue to rise. So, from a benchmark perspective, if they're being selective and and really trying to pick companies that have good strong fundamentals, they're going to be underperforming, or their managers that they've allocated to are going to underperform. So it really creates this whole moral hazard problem where. You know, if, if people think that the stock market is the economy and maybe the president also believes the stock market is the economy and the Fed thinks the stock market is the economy, then how, do, how does this unwind? You know, you, you know, to your first point, you're absolutely right, because one of the things that's important to also understand about what's happening with these retail investors, if you go through the, the message boards and if you read what they're saying or if you ask them directly, they will tell you that all of the money in their account, they can afford to lose without um, affecting their lifestyle. And I've said, actually, that's, that's not good from a market perspective, because what it means is they can be maximum reckless with this money. They are betting. That's why it's small. That's why it's small, like it's 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, depending on who you're talking about. But if it all went to zero today, eh, okay, I feel embarrassed. But I don't have to, I don't have to uh, you know, um, change my lifestyle because I've lost that money. So therefore, they can be so uber aggressive that that money actively acts like it's five times the size and that they can chase bankrupt companies and they can chase momentum and they can do all these strategies that no fiduciary would ever, not only would ever do, would probably be fired for doing it um, as well. Now, how does it end? Boy, that's the $64,000 question, because if I can figure that out, I'll, I'll definitely know when to put my shorts on as well, too. But that said, I think one of two things ends it conceptually. One is you get to what I believe was the 2000 peak, because this is kind of like the bubble peak of 2000, what's going on with small retail. But I actually think this one's bigger because it's more broad based than just technology stocks like it was in 2000. You get to the point where 
so many of these accounts have come in that the next drawdown, there isn't a wave of millions of more accounts that are going to open up and sink money in like happened in March. Because what happened in March was millions of new brokerage accounts were opened and everybody funded them and ran into the market. If you get to a point where the next downturn is, they're already in. They can't get in again. Um, that could produce a top. The other way you could produce a top is all of this money gives you malinvestment, is what I'll call it, either inflation or it rewards the wrong companies, it doesn't reward the good companies, and it creates a bunch of distortions. But what I'm leading up to, and this is the second part of your question, is all of this does suggest that there is a decoupling between what the markets are doing and what the economy is saying. There was an economist in the 1970s named George Goodhart, uh, excuse me, Charles Goodhart. He was a part of the, uh, he was part of the Thatcher um, prime ministership. And he coined a, a Goodhart law, which said that if a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a measure. So what is happening in the market is the Federal Reserve and the federal government are targeting airlines and oil companies and corporate bonds and ETFs and treasuries and agencies and mortgages and some medium-sized loans as well. So they're targeting them. So they then stop becoming measures of the economy. I believe that wholly. And so we look at these things and we make pronostications that, well, because interest rates are doing this or corporate bonds are doing that or the airlines are doing this or the retailers are doing that, that it means X, Y, or Z for the economy. Yes, if you don't have the heavy hand of a, of a government intervention or a central bank intervention targeting it, that would be true. But if you have them targeting it, then it starts to diverge. And there's no bigger example of that than, uh, as we speak, we're speaking the day before the Federal Reserve meeting on June 10th. The Federal Reserve meeting is going to be tomorrow. And the big question is going to be yield curve control, otherwise known as price fixing. Is the Fed going to fix the price of, of, of treasury bonds uh, and uh, in, in what they call yield curve control, restate it? Are they going to divorce the bond market from the underlying fundamentals? Meaning then that interest rates have no bearing to what inflation or economic growth are doing. I actually think they're pretty much there right now that interest rates don't have any bearing to it because of the heavy hand of the central bank, but they're very close to formalizing it. If they don't do it tomorrow, the wide expectation is in the next few months, they will announce that formal target. Yeah, they've, they've already been, you know, uh, involved in in sort of helping buying bonds, buying ETFs as well. You know, but but where where does this sort of where's the blow off to, to this? You know, you can keep you, you mentioned so many different places where they're involved in the markets, but you can't stop everything. You know, what becomes the 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 blow off? Is it gold? Is it the U.S. dollar? You know, it, you know, as as things something blows up, as you, you know, you can't centrally plan everything. You know, it's either a physical asset or maybe it's social unrest. Maybe maybe that's what it is. But you know, how does this how does this sort of play out in terms of you know them targeting an interest rate, maybe supporting bonds, indirectly maybe supporting equities? 
Um, where, where does this go? I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Yeah, I think um, from this perspective, the bond market is allowing the Fed to do this. So when the bond market starts to reject the Fed, then it's over. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, the economist Ed Yardani coined a phrase a long time ago called the bond market vigilantes. And when the bond market rises up in unison and says no, then I think that the bond market as a group is large enough to counteract what the central bank is doing. Today, the bond market is not in agreement. There are some in the bond market that think what the Fed is doing is wrong. There's others in the bond market that think that their job is basically buy what the Fed is going to buy right before they buy front run the Fed. That's their strategy. And look, that's a good strategy to play, but it's longer term. It does kind of distort things. If, if all you're playing is this, um, you know, is this uh, betting game of trying to uh, bet on what the Fed's going to do before they announce it as well. But if you were to get inflation or the perception of inflation, I think then the bond market comes in unison and says, this is wrong. This is going to be a problem. I don't want to own these securities. And in mass, they can counteract the Federal Reserve. Now, you're not there yet, but you're seeing indications of that maybe brewing out there. Federal, uh, the U.S. Treasury has to borrow record sums of money right now um, and coming uh, $3 trillion this quarter alone is what they have to borrow. If you start to see the belief that that supply coupled with an inflation return is percolating in the market, and the reason I think you are is if you look at the may, if you look at most of the uh, measures in the bond market uh, of flows, there's outflows out of funds. There's there's outflows or basically no flow into ETFs. There's outflows out of central banks that in general, the private sector is not selling treasuries. The Treasury Department's got a massive amount of, buy, of uh, issuance they've got to do. The only buyer that's holding everything together is the Fed. Then uh, I think if that were to accelerate, that selling were to accelerate because of a fear of inflation, then you could see a massive rise in rates. And that could push the Fed aside, even though their perception is that they're all omnipotent right now. And whatever they decide, like yield curve control, if they decide that the five-year note should be trading at 20 basis points, then by God, it's going to trade at 20 basis points, plus or minus a couple of basis points forever. And once then you get inflation, that won't be the case. The Fed won't be able to do it anymore. And I think the market will break. Now that I said that, I don't think that's happening now or next week or probably next month. And that's uh, somewhere down the line. You know, and one of the things that, that strikes me as, you, as you're talking about this, sort of this backdrop of, of fixed interest and equity markets is for institutional investors, they're really hamstrung. You know, a lot of them have got, you know, these these predetermined asset allocations. They can't really change it. They've also got these object um, objectives they need to hit from a target perspective. So they're almost sort of having to go blind into this into this sort of situation where they need to be allocated. They need to be allocated all the time. They can't take risk off the table because they need to try and deliver outcomes. Um, and yet you've got the market going crazy. Um, how, how do we think about this problem? 
Yeah, you know, just as a quick aside about the market going crazy, uh, I've joked with a number of investors and I said, the one thing I know for sure about 2020 this year is virtually everybody can say that their worst call and their best call of their career was this year because almost nobody has gotten it right both ways. So if you were bearish like me, you know, in February, which I was, the best call of my career was I got the February, March move down. If you didn't turn bullish at the low, which I didn't do, the worst call of my career has been what's happened since March 23rd. Now, others rode the market all the way down, and that was the worst call of their career. It is now round-tripped all the way back up. That's the best call of their career. And you know what? As we talk right now, the market's unchanged on the year. So everybody's made the best call and the worst call of their year, and no one's really won either way as of yet because the returns in the year are essentially zero. And I'm speaking more about risk markets and equities um, right now. But to the larger point that you said, all of these benchmarks that professional investors use, that we use the indexes and that the way that we allocate money and all of the rules that, that we've associated with, we're set up on the assumption, two assumptions. Assumption one is everybody in the market was prudent and rational and there was no heavy hand of a government or a central bank to distort the market. Well, now we've got a big bunch of irrational players that are basically gambling with money. It's small, but you add them all up and they're significant. And you've got a central bank that believes not only is the stock market not a measure of the economy, but it might actually believe that the economy is a measure of the stock market. What I mean by that is they believe in the wealth effect. They think the best way to get the economy stronger is if we ramp equity prices or risk markets higher, we force them higher um, through artificial means, that will create a wealth effect, that will increase confidence, that will increase spending. The economy will then come to reflect the markets as opposed to the markets becoming a reality. If that's true, the way that investors, the way the institutional money has been structured, it won't work in that kind of environment. We were in an environment where the markets were supposed to reflect the economy, and the economy was a freely traded uh, animal that was made up largely of rational actors acting in prudent self-interest, but prudent self-interest. And in 2020, that's largely what we don't have right now. So, so where can you potentially look? You know, if you're an institutional investor, you know, what can give you signs that maybe this this maniac style behavior is is maybe breaking? You know, if you want to sort of hold back and be defensive for the time being and then look for the next entry point, what can you look to? Um, to get this maniac, unfortunately, I think out of the market, we're going to need some kind of a problem. And the reason I say that is, now I'm going to break with what a lot of people think. Let's just, for argument's sake, say that spreads continue to narrow, risk markets continue to go higher, interest rates drift a little bit higher, but nothing special. And along the way, the economy recovers, all the economies recover from the pandemic, and inflation stays quiet. In other words, the central banks and the central planners won. 
They won in a big way. I've argued that if that happens, they are not going to say, you're welcome. I saved the world. And then they're going to go back in their barracks and leave it to the rest of us to go back to the way that was. They're going to stay forever. They're going to be a permanent part of the market. Just like the Fed used to call quantitative easing unconventional policy. And now, 12 years later, they never stopped it. And it's the most conventional thing they're doing, as opposed to everything else, that they will be a permanent part. The only way we're going to get them out is their actions create problems. And there's a demand that they stop. They're not going to leave as victors. They're going to leave defeated is what I think is going to happen in the marketplace. So I fear that if we don't get a problem now, they're going to ramp it up even higher. And this goes by a, a very special name, modern monetary theory. It's been already pointed out a lot of times in the U.S. that between March and August, the amount of money that the Fed is going to print, the amount of money that the Treasury is going to borrow in five months is going to be equal to four years of tax returns in the United States. Well, if you can print and borrow five, four years of taxes in five months, and there's no problem, there's no inflation, there's no malinvestment, the economy recovers, things get better, then let's just abolish the IRS. Why do we even collect taxes? What's the point? Just print it and borrow it, whatever you need, and we can just spend it that way. That's modern monetary theory at that point. So I just don't see, I don't think that they're, they're going to just come in, save the little children from themselves in the financial markets, and then once they've all calmed down, leave. They're never going to leave. The only way they're going to leave is if we tell them to leave because they're making it worse. And uh, so if it doesn't be, if it's not being made worse now, they'll ramp it up more until later on, maybe years down the road, maybe weeks down the road that they do make it worse and then they're being asked to leave then at that point. You know, when I listen to you talk about it, it really seems to me as some sort of like a confidence game. You know, confidence from the Fed, confidence from the the, the companies, from the people, the participants in the market, you know, the the day traders. You know, this confidence, you know, it can only hold for so long until it until it breaks. Um, you know, is that a, is that a fair way to 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 describe the the, the current situation? Yeah, I think that I, th I think that's exactly what it is. The day traders, the, the millennials that are plowing money in, that don't have sports gambling or, or just everything else, they have the confidence that, uh, look, buy Chewy because I like dogs and the market only goes up. Why does the market only go up? Because Jay Powell says he's got a near unlimited ability to make money, to make the market go up. And then the Fed believes that the economy reflects the market. When you ask the Fed, why are you doing this? They say, look, if we weren't invest, if we weren't in the market, helping companies stabilize the market so companies could borrow record amounts of money, they would have to lay off people. Now, that's what he says, and that's largely true. But what he's failing to recognize is maybe the markets were making judgments about these companies and that things needed to change or that their financial positions weren't strong enough and you're superseding the free market's opinion about the creditworthiness 
and the investability of a lot of these companies by, by coming in with an unlimited printing press and saying, everybody gets money because we don't want anybody to lose jobs. So that seems to be, then they're, they're hoping that that confidence will translate to, well, we'll hire more people, we won't fire people, and we'll keep the market going higher. So in essence, there's a belief that the markets don't reflect the economy, the economy reflects the markets. Why was everybody, and the Fed calls this financial conditions. What was everybody worried about in late March? The stock market being down 35% was going to crater the economy. Not that it reflected the risks that, the, that there was in the economy. The economy was fine. It's just the stock market was causing the problem, not the pandemic. So that's what their backward kind of thinking, I think, is. And that's where the problems really come in. So let's let's change it up for, for the last sort of question. And, and that is sort of another... Uh, to me, what I see is a side issue that can potentially throw the market, and that is the the pressure on the social media companies like Twitter, and then these other sorts of mon- um, monopolies that are out there in the in the market. The people like Microsoft, Apple, um, Facebook, and Amazon. You know the the pressure that will be faced by these companies, um, and given their their portion and the movements that these um, you know, group of group of companies have had of, of late in driving the market higher. Is there a potential risk that um, you know the the current presidency and the Republicans push back um, on some of these companies, and it does affect their share price and maybe starts to an, an unwind? Oh yeah, I think that there's definitely you know that's a that's an interesting and open ended question. I think on one level that 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 the risk isn't that people are going to push back on them; it's already happening. That there's a that there's a that there's a pushback on them as well too, and I think that uh, that pushback is going to continue. Um, you know, I'll give you a quick example of this. Um, the social media companies, there's a giant debate because they do act as an editor and they do uh, censor some of the things that are said on their platform. Um, that's fine. That's their business model. They're welcome to do it, and I don't object, and you don't object to some of the more egregious things that they censor on their platform. But I've argued they have contributed to the sell-off in February and March because one of the interesting things that they were doing in January and February was when early in the early days of the pandemic, when people were pointing out that there's problems, there's issues, there's concerns, their accounts were being deleted their words were being um, their words were being silenced. They were not allowing an an early discussion of this uh, in the early days. Finally, when it built to the point when it was beyond being able to be controlling that uh, opinion, did the markets kind of have that giant swoon? Maybe if we had allowed that discussion to take place in December or January or early February instead of deleting um, accounts in Twitter instead of demonetizing people on YouTube to discuss this kind of thing, it would have been, there would have been a a faster and more uh, robust understanding of what everything was about instead of kind of this abject panic that we had all at once in the month of March. So they're going to get it on that end. And they're also going to get it on the regulatory um, end as as well too. And the last thing I'll mention about them is they're not a monolith. Um, 
Twitter is trying to um, be very proactive in the way that they're censoring uh, speech on their platform, but Facebook is not. Um, you know, and probably the most aggressive of all, all of them is is Google and especially YouTube in the way that they've been they've been monetizing this. And I'm not talking about yeah, I get it that they're that they do it with political speech and they do it with other worthy issues like censoring porn and stuff like that. And that's, that is laudable and, and necessary, but occasionally it bleeds into more generic discussions that could affect investors as well too. And we saw that in the early days of the pandemic. Yeah. So the other question that I wanted to ask you, Jim, was really around sort of the, the power of the FANG stocks, you know, in, in driving the market, you know, I think in terms of the, their presence in the market, they've got to such a large level, you know, how important are these five or six stocks that you know, make up the FANGs and, the, and this broader group, you know, for institutional investors as they think about their portfolio? Yeah, I think that they are possibly, as a group, the most important they've ever been. Let's define this now. The FANG stocks plus Microsoft. Let's throw those six stocks together. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google Alphabet, um, and uh, Microsoft, those six stocks. They are 25% of the S&P 500, or maybe about 23-ish percent or so. They're in that range. As a group of five or six stocks, you got to go back 45 years to find the last time that a handful of stocks like that were that big a, pot, a measure in the market. And if you go back 45 years, you what you'll find is back then, the five stocks that would make up 25 or 30% of the, um, of the index were often unrelated to each other. It was GE, it was Exxon, it was AT&T, uh, it was Citigroup for a while there. You know, so you had different companies in different cycles in different industries. But the FANG stocks, you could argue, are all part of the same sector, and let's call that sector disruptors. So it has an enormous influence on the S&P. For instance, those six stocks alone so far this year have pushed the whole index 5% higher. So while the index, the 494 stocks in the index are collectively down 5%, the other six stocks are about up 5% so that the index is unchanged in the year. If you're an investor, you almost have to walk into your meeting and say, all right, we have to talk about the two most important things in the market. What do we think of these six stocks as a group? What do we think about the other 494 stocks? Once we've got an opinion about both of those, oh, we could kind of get fancy and talk about energy versus consumer discretionary versus utilities um, versus basic materials. Yeah, that's rounding error stuff. But really what we need to talk about is how are those 494 stocks going to behave as a group and how are these six FANG stocks going to behave as a group? Remember, those six FANG stocks as a group have a market capitalization larger than the Japanese stock market. Only the Chinese stock market and the U.S. stock market are larger. They are the third largest stock market in the world. They are larger than all the stocks in Europe, those, those, those six stocks. I believe... Um, if you look at Microsoft, which is the largest cap stock, I think it's larger than the entire German stock market, or it's very close to being larger than the entire German stock market as well, too. So you've got to think about those stocks as being that important in that level. You'll have a whole team of analysts to just to analyze what, what do we do with Germany? 
Do you have a whole team of analysts to analyze what you're going to do with Microsoft? It's almost as important. And so we need to start thinking about what that means for the market. And we need to start incorporating their size into the market. And the big thing I want to emphasize, again, unlike in the past, is they're all somewhat related. Let's call them in the disruptor group. You know, it isn't like an oil stock, a bank stock, and a utility and a, and a retailer like Walmart or something like that. They used to be in part of the five and five. Well, they're all different cycles. They're all different industries. These are all very, very much related to each other. So where they sink or swim can have a big impact on the performance of a portfolio. Well, it's not just the portfolio. You know, given their size, their impact across the whole market because they sit in so many indices. They're in so many passive funds that you know, if they start selling, then then that whole selling flow just reverses. Yes, not only are they uh, not only are they in so many passive funds, but they could dominate some too. So, if you look at like one of the largest, more popular ETFs in the U.S is the, the cubes, the QQQs. Mm -hmm. That's the NASDAQ 100 index. Those six stocks are 50% of that index is what they are right now. They, they are essentially that index. So when everybody piles in and out of the cubes, it matters to those stocks as well too. They're 25% of the S&P with all the money that flows in and out of index funds. That's a quarter of the money going in or out of index funds um, as well too. So their influence is massive in the market. Now, the benefit that they've had is that during the pandemic and the shutdown, they are all correctly classified as the stay-at-home industries or among the stay-at-home stocks. Uh, and so they were in the right place at the right time for a pandemic. That's exactly what you want. You want a Google, you want a Facebook, or you want especially a Netflix, which has been soaring um, because those are the winners when everybody's locked down and stay at home. But now that we're starting to reopen, that dynamic could very well change. And deciding how that dynamic affects them could be the single most important factor to performance in the rest of the year. Well, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.